There's a lot of fascination in our world about the end of the world. I think if you were to Google that, and I don't want you Googling during church, I want you to listen. Uh, but if you were to Google that, you would find all kinds of theories and ideas and websites and blogs that are devoted to trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, to try to interpret current events and figure out when the end of the world is happening. Every few years, there's someone who comes along who tries to predict it and you know, there was the Mayan calendar where they ran out of space on their rock and everybody kind of like, oh, no, the world's going to end and, you know, we're still here. A lot of fascination about this. I think we all have a sense uh, that history is going somewhere and eventually it's going to come to an end. The universe is not just going to continue on indefinitely, but one day it is going to come to an end. Now, there's people in our world today who are keenly aware of the fact that Things aren't always going to continue the way that they are right now. There's, there's people out there, the nickname they get are preppers. How many of you all have heard of preppers before? Uh, you know, doomsday. There was even like, a, like a, a reality TV show about doomsday preppers. People who are, are recognizing, you know, things could get really bad. There could be like a nuclear war. The power grid could go down, an EMP attack, a solar flare, and boom, only those who are prepared, who are ready, will, will be okay as long as you've got enough. You've got a bunker and a gas mask and, of course, plenty of ammo to, to kind of make it through. Well, in our text today, Jesus calls us to be preppers, not in the sense of going into your backyard and digging a bunker, but in the sense of preparing yourself spiritually for the end that is going to come. Jesus tells us in Luke 21 that the world will one day come to an end. He is going to return one day. There's going to be a massive upheaval at the end of history, and when that upheaval occurs, it's called the Great Tribulation, he's going to return and he's going to judge this world. He's going to establish his kingdom. And the call of this passage to Christians like you and me is for us to be ready, for us to be prepared. And the preparation is, not, again, not, uh-oh, there's going to be a, we need to you know, hide out in the woods and be ready to go. The preparation is preparing our hearts and being on guard spiritually for the time when that comes. By the way, if you were to survey the New Testament and find out what are the things we are meant to be doing in light of the fact that the end is upon us. They're actually really quite surprisingly ordinary. Hebrews 10 says, you know, one thing you should do so much the more as you see the day approaching is go to church. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, here's what you should do when you recognize the end of the world is coming. Get a job, go to work, and just be a good neighbor and a good citizen. 1 Peter tells us, you know what you should do? You should be engaged in hospitality. In other words, the end of the world is not calling us to build bunkers, but to build bigger living rooms and tables and inviting people into our lives because we know Jesus is going to come back one day. Just throwing that out there. So Luke 21, Jesus comes along to deal with this question. Now, just a quick overview. Jesus is leaving the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and he, he tells his disciples, this is going to turn into a, a heap of rubble one day. The disciples come along and are like, oh my goodness, when's that going to happen? When the temple's destroyed, that's got to be the end of the world. Jesus is answering really two issues here. One of them is, when will the temple be destroyed? Okay, that's happened in history. The year AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The other question is the assumption that they had that that would be related to the end of the world, and he's going to actually make a concerted effort to say the destruction of the temple is one thing, and then the end of the world is going to be another thing. And his greater concern is not so much the chronology of when these things will happen, but the character of his disciples as they wait. So let's, start, let's read through this text. It is a longer passage, but we want to hear God's word, and I want you to get to the full brunt of it. Jesus would have said this all on one occasion. So follow along, Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, 
As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I'm Christ. And the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, rebellions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass. But the end is not by and by, is not immediately upon you. Then said he to them, Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful signs and great signs shall be from heaven. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being, uh, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. Get out of Jerusalem, don't go into it. For these, uh, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and woe to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until... The times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That implies there's a space of time. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea, the waves roaring, men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in the cloud with power and great glory And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, and ye know of yourselves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now here's the application. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your heart be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Quite a panoramic view Jesus gives here of of human history. But what I want to do is break this down to where we 
take away what he wants us to take away. The point of this was not to, is not to fill our heads with a, you know, a chart where we're like, this is going to happen, and these arrows and pointing, and we know the end of time before it comes. The point here is to call us to a certain way of life. He says, don't be deceived. He says, don't be terrified. At the end, he's like, hey, watch your own heart. This is calling us to holiness. From this text, we see that God is calling you and me to prepare ourselves for the return of his son. And we're going to do that by developing six attitudes. So I want to kind of hang our thoughts on these six attitudes that he calls us to develop. The first one is this. We are called to be discerning. To, call, to be discerning. Did you notice the first word Jesus gives in verse 8 is, Take heed that you be not deceived. One of the great dangers when we begin thinking about what's going to happen in the future is this danger of deception. Now, there's some, several areas that Jesus warns us against being deceived. Some areas where he says we need to be discerning. One of them is about false hopes. Notice what the disciples are saying in verse 5. They're like, hey, look at the temple. Isn't this awesome? And indeed, the temple in Jerusalem was a magnificent building. But what happened is the Jewish people over time, as they did in the Old Testament, began to think, hey, look, we've got this really awesome building. God's presence is here. There's no way God would judge us when we have the temple. They began to look at the temple as an object of their hope. They began to look at the temple as a sort of a protection against God's judgment. Verse 6, Jesus isn't impressed. He says, these things which you behold, it's going to be a pile of rubble. There's not going to be one stone upon another that's going to be left. The whole thing is going to be completely flattened at some point. Now, just remember the context. We're in the middle of the Passion Week. On Sunday, Jesus had entered the city to the adulation of his disciples. Monday, he had gone into the temple, and what had been going on, the temple had been completely corrupted with the worship of money, right? The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, had set up basically a religious Walmart in the temple courts where it was just about money, it was just about getting rich, it was just about taking advantage of people. And he had symbolically judged the temple already, cast the money changers out, cast out those who were taking advantage of other people, said, you've turned this into a hideout for criminals, the next day, the religious leaders confront Jesus, asking him, by what power, do, what authority do you do these things? Jesus pronounces a parable against them, saying that the, the, the responsibilities, the privileges of Israel are going to be transferred to another people, to the Gentiles. We looked last week at the confrontation between Jesus and the religious establishment. So everything has been building to a head. This here is not simply a statement of political, you know, uh, prognostication. This is not just Jesus being like, you know, I think the Romans are... This is a statement of divine judgment. He's saying the nation of Israel, as represented by the temple, has rejected God, and judgment is going to come. They're absolutely flabbergasted. That's why they say in verse 7, when will these things be? In their mind... By the way, if you read Mark and Matthew's account, they ask another question. What will be the sign of the end? In their mind, if the temple gets destroyed, that's the end of the world. That's the end of the world. This is such a big deal. But what Jesus is doing here in saying the temple will be dismantled is he is also dismantling the false hope that many of the people in his audience had. Look at our heritage. Look at, look at this temple that we have. Look at these trappings of religiosity. Surely that will protect us from God's judgment. Fancy religious architecture and external piety will not spare you or anyone from divine judgment. You have the most beautiful church buildings in the world. You can have cathedrals. You can have a rich Christian heritage. We can have crosses and flags and all these things going along. But if the heart does not obey and love God, it can no more prevent 
the judgment of God than a fire extinguisher could stop a forest fire. Our sin is so deep and desperate that only a radical heart change can, can rescue us. So as you notice, their main question has to do with what? When's the temple going to be destroyed? Now, here's the big overview of the passage. From verse, verse 8 down to verse 24, Jesus is talking only about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. All right, that's what he's talking about. In one generation, 40 years from now, this building is going to be destroyed. He de- deals with that. And then only then in verse 25 does he begin to talk about the end of the world. Now, why does he deal with them together? Is because the events are so similar. The destruction of the temple by the Romans is very much like the great tribulation that will come. The desolation of Jerusalem will be like the abomination of desolation that will come at the end of time when Antichrist sets himself up in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped. These events are really similar in character, even if they're divided by chronology. Just give you an illustration of this. September 11th, 2001. I think all of us can remember where we were. If you were alive in sort of a certain age, you can remember where you were when you found out what happened that day. In some ways, September 11th, 2022 feels closer to September 11th, 2021 than, say, like August the 4th from 2006. Even though August the 4th, 2006 is closer chronologically, September 11th, 2022 feels closer in the event because we're remembering it on that day. Hebrew prophecy does the same thing. It'll take events that are very similar and it'll treat them like they're the same thing. Jerusalem gets destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. It gets desecrated again in about 166 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes. It gets destroyed again by Titus and the Romans in A.D. 70. And it's going to get destroyed again during the tribulation. And prophecy deals with these all as sort of like a telescope that opens up, that they regards them as the same. Jesus here is focusing on the near event, what's going to happen within the lifetime of many of his hearers. He says, be discerning about this false hope. Now, notice what he says in verse 8. Take heed, be on your guard, watch out that you be not deceived. For many will come saying, I am. Notice Christ is in italics, but people claiming to be Messiah. And other people saying, the time draws near, go not after him. He says, listen, there's going to be people who are going to come and they're going to claim to be the Messiah. They're going to claim that the end of the world has happened. This literally happened in the next 40 years between the time Jesus said this and the events of A.D. 70. There was a group called the Zealots, and they said, you know what, guys? Our salvation will be found in rebelling against Rome, in getting rid of the Romans, and reestablishing Israel as an independent nation. And with messianic zealotry, they convinced an entire nation of people to run off the cliff with them. And the results... Oh my, you read the descriptions from Josephus of the bloodletting that occurred when the Romans came back in. But what everyone believed, this is our hope, is to get rid of the Romans. I'm reminded of the fact that even if we don't have many people today saying, I'm the Messiah, everyone is looking for some kind of a savior, right? The people of Jesus' day thought that their problem was Roman oppression. If the problem's Roman oppression, then what's salvation? Get rid of the Romans. Today, we have people who say that man's basic problem is political corruption. So they will look to who? Politicians to sort of be the saviors and the ones who are going to save the country. Some will say man's basic problem is therapeutic and just mental health. And so where will salvation be found? In the therapist. People will say their basic problem is financial. So the solution will be a career and people will become sort of worshipers of their job. And we hear even that word, that word like a workaholic 
What is that? It's trying to find salvation and deliverance from, from poverty through a job. Others will say man's basic problem is relational. And so they will look to family and friends to fill that void. Here's the deal. If you look to all of those saviors, they will always let you down. Politicians won't be able to deliver on their promises. The therapist won't be able to really fix what's going on in your soul. Your job won't give you the meaning and the wholeness that you think that it will give you. And friends and family, you will, you will load them up with so many expectations they will buckle under the weight. The only one who can be your savior is Jesus. No politician, therapist, career, family, or friend can save you from what really ails you, which is sin. There's only one Messiah. There's only one Savior. There's only one I am. And it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one who lived a sinless life for us. The one who died a substitutionary death in our place and rose rose to deliver us, who's one day returning. He's the one we trust. Don't be caught up with all these, I'm the Messiah. Your answer's here. Your hope's found here. And lurch from one Messiah, one Savior to the other. He says, be discerning discerning about these false hopes, about these false messiahs. And then in verse 9, he says, be discerning about these false signs. There's a mountain that I enjoy climbing in Arizona called Humphreys Peak. It's the highest point in Arizona. It's 12,633 feet. And you come up this trail above the tree line, you come to a saddle, and then then the, the, the trail goes off to the left up this ridge. And you climb up the ridge, and you get, you're like, I've made it to the top. And then you're like, Oh, it's a false summit. And so you keep on going along, huffing and puffing, head exploding from the altitude. And you come to yet another false summit. I think when it's all said and done, there's like three false summits before you finally get to the top. Jesus is like, hey, there's these false summits, if you will, these signs that are like wars and rumors of wars and rebellions and famines and earthquakes and hurricanes. He's like, these are not signs of the end. Uh, let that sink in a little bit because what so often happens, a war breaks out in Ukraine and then some prophecy guy will jump onto YouTube and be like, this is Gog and Magog and the end is upon us and buy my book. Or, hey, look, there's going to be these blood moons, buy my book. And, oh, look, there's going to be, it's 1988, buy my book. There's always a, a book and a donation thing involved. People who come along and try to interpret current events and say that the end is upon us are charlatans, according to Jesus. He says... Wars, famines, all of these things. A lot of people read this verse and are like, oh, look, there was an earthquake in Japan and a tsunami over here and all of these. The end is near. Jesus is explicitly saying, look at, look at verse, um, verse 9. It says, all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Listen, human history has been marked by war after war and famines and pestilences and natural disasters that are far more terrifying than anything you and I have ever experienced. For us to sit down and kind of look and be like, oh no, COVID-19, it must be the end times, um, is a really narrow focus of history, like, hey, go read about the Black Death, that was bad. Oh man, we got a, there's, there's, there's some kind of a war going on the other side of the world, this is bad. Hey, go read about World War II if you lived in Poland, right? It's been far worse in other places and times. Jesus is saying, don't look at wars and things that are going on in your world and say, oh, the end must be near. I hear Christians say things like, man, with everything going on in America, we must be coming into the end times. Like, um, you do realize God's plan has not got America right at the center. It's not actually about us. His scope of history is far bigger. Jesus says, don't be deceived by these false signs. Don't be terrified when you see things happen. God has a plan for human history that is working out, and it involves all of these things. And it's not up to us to try to read the newspaper and get a magnifying glass out and try to figure out 
what this is going on. Don't be deluded by people setting dates and interpreting current events and exegeting news stories. So he says, don't be deceived. And then he says in verse 9, don't be terrified. Listen, Christians should be the last people, the last people on the planet who are going to get swept up in some kind of panic. Like, oh, no, we're being ruled by lizard people who are going to try to, like, do mind control. Like, we should be the last people thinking that because we know God is sovereign, not some cabal in the basement of the Denver airport. He's the one who is ruling history. Not Congress, not the White House, not the United Nations. They're doing his will. They're carrying out his plan, even though they don't know it. So don't be deceived. Be discerning. Now, how do we become discerning? We become discerning by being steeped in God's word. You're not going to be discerning by reading discernment blogs. You're going to become discerning by reading God's word. You can become discerning not by watching YouTube videos, but by reading and studying and meditating on God's Word. And discernment is less about reading the times as it is being able to tell good from evil and right from wrong. It's being so steeped with what the authentic truth is that you can spot the counterfeit. So this is a call to dive deep into God's Word. So be discerning. That's the first call that Jesus makes to us. Secondly, he calls us to be faithful. So verses 12 to 19, Jesus says, okay, before some of these things are going to happen, there's going to be these events with the fall of Jerusalem. He says, before Jerusalem falls, A.D. 70, there's going to be persecution. And Jesus is speaking literally to his disciples who are right in front of him. Anybody read the book of Acts lately? One of the things that you'll realize when you read the book of Acts is that all the things that Jesus said would happen here happened to the early church. He says in verse 12, before all these things They'll lay their hands on you, they'll arrest you, they'll persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and to prisons to be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. That's basically um, a summary of the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, by the way. You get James and John dragged before the Sanhedrin. You get them put in prison, and then the angel releases them. You get Paul taken before kings and rulers. What this is describing is persecution they would get from the Jewish religious establishment, the synagogue, and persecution they would get from the Roman government, the kings, the rulers. So we see Paul standing before Agrippa and before, uh, before Herod and before these different rulers fulfilling this prophecy. Now, what is Jesus saying to his followers? Before Jerusalem falls, you're going to undergo a time of persecution. You're going to face persecution. It's going to come from the synagogues. It's going to come from the Roman government. Verse 16, you'll be betrayed by parents and brothers and kinsfolk and friends. It'll even come from people close to you. Wow. This is a call to be faithful. Now, while this was written primarily to the disciples, application to you and me is incredibly relevant. Jesus is saying, be faithful. There's going to be pressures. There's going to be hardships. There is going to be suffering that comes your way. This has been the lot of most Christians through history is to face suffering, to face persecution. I think we all know people who at one time profess to be Christians. Like, I go to church, I like Jesus. And then some horrific suffering comes into their lives. They lose a loved one. They go through sickness. They're horribly wronged or mistreated or abused or abandoned. And they say, you know what? I can't believe in this anymore because of this hardship that I've gone through. I think we as, church, as the church in America have done a really, really lousy job to equip people to suffer. We've told people things like, well, God wants you to be blessed and to be happy. If you follow Jesus, life will go better for you. When the New Testament says, 
Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, though some strange thing happened to you. Saying suffering and persecution is not a stranger or a foreigner for the Christian. Suffering and persecution is a house guest that all too commonly comes by to stay a while. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you're going to be faithful, you're going to be faithful through the hard times, you've got to expect suffering and persecution to come. Don't be surprised by it. In fact, God has a good and gracious purpose in our suffering. Romans 8 says that the suffering we experience is not worthy to be compared to the glory which we revealed to us in Christ. What does suffering do? It multiplies the glory that I will one day enjoy in the presence of Jesus. What does suffering do? 1 Peter 1.7, the trial of your faith, it purifies your faith like gold through a fire. It makes you cling all the more to Jesus makes you long all the more for heaven. God has a good purpose in bringing suffering and, yes, persecution into our lives. It's all about how we respond to it. What I love about these verses, verses 12 to 19, is how Jesus weaves promises through here. He doesn't just say, all right, disciples, it's going to be really hard. White-knuckled obedience, just hold on. No, he doesn't do that. He gives them promises. You see, promises are the fuel for faithfulness. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus, when difficulty comes, when persecution comes, when suffering comes, it's only going to be by holding on to his promises. So notice one of the promises he gives them in verse 13. He says, okay, all these things are going to happen to you, but it will result to you for a testimony. What does he mean by that? He means that the suffering itself will give you a platform to be a witness to Jesus. Acts 1.8, again, Acts is going to help us interpret Luke. They're written by the same guy. He says, you will be witnesses to me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. You know, one of the ways that the gospel advanced in the early centuries is by persecution. The Sanhedrin persecutes the church in Jerusalem, and everybody goes everywhere speaking the gospel. It's like there's there's a fire, there's coals, there's embers, and they're like, hey, the way we're going to put the fire out is by scattering the coals. Only problem is where they scatter the coals to is a dry field of grass where the flames are just going to spread all the more. The more they tried to to put Christianity out, the more the gospel advanced. Paul even says in in, in Philippians 1 verse 12, he's like, the things that happened to me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Beloved, when you go through suffering, and some of you are going through suffering right now, it is a God-ordained opportunity to give testimony to the fact that Jesus is your treasure. When we say to the world, I love Jesus, and everything's going great, and you have a nice car in the driveway, and your home looks like HGTV, they're kind of like, well, I'd love Jesus too if I had all that. But when you say, I love Jesus, when you're going through chemo, when you say, I love Jesus, when your family is going through a heartache, when you say, I love Jesus, when you've lost a spouse, When you say, I love Jesus and I'm clinging to Jesus when I've lost everything else, that says to the world, Jesus is more valuable than all those other things. It's a testimony. Another promise he gives. Verse 15, he says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. I'll I'll tell you what to say in those moments. Now, this is not um, a promise to unprepared preachers to get up on Sunday mornings and just run their mouth and have nothing to say. This is not about, like, preaching in the normal gathering of the church. This is about... When you get arrested and you are on trial for Jesus, he says, in that moment, I will give you the wisdom that you need to speak boldly. Again, you read the book of Acts. James and John, they're before the Sanhedrin. It says, they took note of these guys, that they were ignorant and unlearned men. 
and they had been with Jesus. They're like, where did they get this wisdom from? We see Stephen before the Sanhedrin gives this incredible sermon, and they can't argue with it because they're just like, this is true. They still kill him, but he gives testimony to Jesus, and there's this incredible God-given wisdom in that moment of difficulty. There's another promise that he gives. Okay, so we get verse 16 and 17. They're like, everybody's going to hate you, including your own family, for my name. That's positive and encouraging. Thanks a lot. But then he says in verse 18, there shall not an hair of your head perish. Anybody feel the contradiction there? You're going to get killed, but you're not going to die. Like, huh? Like, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. Everybody's going to hate you, but no harm will come to a single hair of your head. What do we, what do, we do with that? Jesus is saying there is a fate that is worse than physical death. And there is a destiny that is better than physical life. And it is joy in God's presence. He's saying no matter what people do to you physically, they can take your life from you. They cannot touch your eternal life that is secure in me. The promise of eternal life and eternal security sustains our faith when the going gets tough. If you, are, if you belong to Jesus, if you are his, you might die of some horrible disease but you will never perish. You might face the darkness of dementia, but you will never perish. You might be abandoned and abused, but you will never perish. You might be racked with pain, but you will never perish. You might go through the fire, you might go through suffering, but you will never perish. And you can be absolutely certain if you belong to Jesus that no matter what happens to you, it is not God's wrath. We're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. What a promise. Think about how bold that would make you if you're like, I don't care if I die. Because I'm going to live forever in the presence of Jesus, and that's my hope, and that's my treasure. That's what he is saying, this promise. Now, what is that? look at what that promise does. And by your endurance, verse 19, you must possess, you must acquire your souls. The way this is put in Matthew and Mark is, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Wow, that sounds contradictory to the gospel of grace. Well, not really. What Jesus is saying there is God's promises that we accept by faith. Here's how you know you have accepted God's promises by faith. is You persevere. Because if you believe God's promises, you'll keep believing in Jesus. The promise fuels the perseverance. Faith results in this endurance. Promises are to faithfulness. What fuel is to a rocket, what electricity is to a light, what gas is to a car. The promises of God are what, what, what result in and bring about this endurance and this perseverance. That's what that word patience refers to. Those who wilt away when suffering comes, Jesus talks about them in the parable of the sower. The word never really made it to their heart. Those who abandon the faith when difficulty comes never really had saving faith. We're not saved by persevering. We persevere because of God's promises that sustain us. So as we think about end times, we think about what's going to happen in the future. Number one, we've got to be discerning. Number two, we must be faithful. Faithfulness fueled by the promises of God. But number three, we must be patient. Jesus now talks about the question of Jerusalem falling. We've already talked about this kind of in the introduction, but verses 20 to 24, he says, okay, it's going to be surrounded by armies. It's literally what happened in AD 70. The Romans came, they surrounded it. They built a, a little wall around the whole city so nobody could escape. 
He says, when you see that happening, you know the city's about to be desolated. You know the city's about to fall. And then he gives an instruction in verse 21, get out of town. Now, normal, the normal impulse when an army is coming is to, to run to the walled city. That's where it's going to be safe. It's like, don't do that. The, the illustration that Jeremiah uses is the city is like a cauldron, and the people inside it are like the meat. You're going to be cooked, right? You're going to be somebody's dinner. Jesus says, when the Roman army comes in, don't flee to the city, head for the hills. Now, that all happened in the year 70 AD, okay? So he says in verse 22, in those days are days of vengeance, of divine wrath, that all things which are written might be fulfilled. In verse 23, it says, there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. He's not talking about here in this context about the worldwide tribulation of the end of history, but he's talking about the judgment that fell on Israel during the Jewish revolt. The Roman armies, vicious and violent and horrible, were God's instrument to bring judgment upon his rebellious people. In the end, when the entire rebellion was done, Josephus records that there were 1.1 million people who died. That's a staggering number, even by modern standards. Uh, when you think about World War II with all the people who died there, a lot of that was bombing and distance and guns. All these people would have been killed either by starvation or literally a sword being stuck into them. Like, just horrible. Horrible bloodletting that occurred. Horrible starvation. When it was all said and done, as verse 24 says, they will fall by the mouth of the sword and be led away captive. There were 90,000 Jews who were spread as captives throughout the Roman world. So what's the point of this? I think many of Luke's readers would have seen this happen. And they would have had the same assumption his, his apostles, his, Jesus' disciples had, which is when Jerusalem falls, the end of the world arrives, Jesus comes back. But what happened in AD 70? Jerusalem fell, but the world didn't end. Jerusalem fell, the temple was destroyed, but Jesus didn't come back. So Jesus gives this little word at the end of verse 24. It's going to be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's a really important phrase. What Jesus is saying is the gospel is now going to the Gentiles. right? It's going to the nations. We see that beginning to happen in the book of Acts. And there's going to be this time period in God's plan where he is going to focus on the nations. Yes, there's still going to be Jews who get saved, but by and large, Romans 11, they are blinded and hardened to the gospel. There's this indefinite amount of time that we are still in the middle of the times of the Gentiles. Now, that little word until tells us there's going to be a point where that comes to an end and Israel will be brought back in. Romans 11.25 uses almost identical language in the Greek where, where Paul writes... Uh, blindness has come in part on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be, be brought in. In other words, God has a set number of Gentile individuals that he is going to save. And then after that, what's going to happen? It then turns back to Israel, and so that all Israel shall be saved, according to Romans eleven twenty five. So all of this is to say to the people of Luke's day and the people of our day, be patient, be patient. The end's not happening immediately. Jerusalem falls, but it's not happening right now. There's going to be a time period of waiting for the return of Jesus. We're called to be patient as we await that. And listen, in the meantime, God is completely in control of all of human history. There's nothing, literally nothing that happens in the world as a whole or in your life in particular that is outside of his plan. He's in control. We can rest in his purposes. We can await his plan, his timing. We now jump over the millennia from, okay, that's what was going to happen in regards to Jerusalem, 
All of that has happened in history. We're in the times of the Gentiles. Verse 25 now jumps to some indeterminate point in the future, and none of us know when, and none of us should try to figure out when, to this time that is called the Great Tribulation in other places, the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, the the time that's really unpacked in Revelation. All of it kind of gets compressed down into just a few words here in verses 25 and 26, where the entire cosmos is going through upheaval, where stars are falling out of heaven, where the sun and the moon, they stop shining. Jesus is like, all of these things are going to happen. Notice what happens on earth in verse 25. Distress, perplexity, hearts fainting for fear. People uncertain about what's going to happen. This time of absolute terror and panic. Revelation says people will come by the mountains and cry out for the mountains to fall on them and to end their lives. These here are all of the signs of Jesus' coming. In verse 29 and 30, Jesus is like, let me give you an illustration. When a tree begins to get its leaves, hey, you know summer is coming. When you see the things happening in verses 25 and 26, you know that my return is coming. Not that you can set a date, but he's like, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars in complete utter upheaval, when you see perplexity and the, just the complete collapse of, of humanity as described in Revelation, Antichrist, one world government, the beast, all of these things occurring, he says, when that's happening... Did you know that the time is coming near? There are signs of his coming that will be absolutely terrifying and the world will completely reel. But here's the focal point, verse 27. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice the they. This is going to, time in the future, this is going to occur. The Son of Man, a reference to Jesus. He is quoting here from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 where the Son of Man takes this authority from God Almighty, and he comes back to rule the entire universe. We call this the second coming of Jesus. It's described in 2 Thessalonians 1. It's described in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, where he will annihilate all of his enemies. Revelation 19 describes it. He comes back with a sword. There's the battle of Armageddon. And then he establishes his kingdom here on this earth to rule and reign a thousand years. A time of great glory. Beloved, that is our hope. That's our hope. That's what we're looking for. Verse 28, he says, when these things begin to come to pass, hey, the stuff in verses 25 and 26, look up, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. In other words, be hopeful, be expectant. Our posture towards the future is not cowering in fear. Oh no, what's going to happen with the election on Tuesday? And what's going to happen in 2024? And what about the national debt and Russia and ICBMs and all these things? You know, my job. It's expectation that Jesus will one day come back and make all things new. Everything, literally everything that is wrong with our world, everything that is wrong with our world will be fixed when Jesus comes back. Plenty of things that we do not have the capacity that's beyond our ability to fix, he'll fix when he comes back. And everything will be made new. Everybody has in their hearts this longing for kind of utopia, which means no place. This idea of this perfect government, this perfect society, and people have tried to bring it in and it's always been really bad when they've tried to do that. One day it will come in when Jesus returns and rules this world with a rod of iron. Our hope is Jesus. Our longing is his glory. It is our future in his presence that we look forward to. So your redemption, your deliverance is just around the corner. 
say it differently, the best is always yet to come for the Christian. No matter how dark and how bad it gets, one day King Jesus will come back when the night has become the darkest and it will be like the noonday sun in glory and in beauty and the whole world will see it and Israel will turn to him in repentance and the nations will fall before him. That is our expectation. We as Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world. I don't mean just a shallow optimism of, oh, things will just get better. Like, No, I, hope and optimism aren't the same thing. Hope is confident expectation that God will keep his promises and that what he said he would do, he, would, he will actually do. Now, verses 29 to 33, I've touched on them, but let me just make this point briefly. A fifth posture we should have, a fifth attitude we should have is one of confidence. We're expecting the return of Jesus. He gives this, this parable like, hey, fig trees, when their leaves come on, like, you know, summer is just around the corner. He says, just as surely as summer follows spring, so my plan will follow as I have laid it out. He even goes so far as to say this generation won't pass till all be fulfilled. He could mean a couple of different things. He may be saying, this generation right in front of me, they will experience the fall of the, of the Jerusalem temple. Or he could be saying the generation that is alive when the tribulation happens, they'll see all of it within their lifetime. When it gets going, it's going to happen quickly. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. What is Jesus saying? He says, you can take it to the bank. You can be confident in what I say that it is true. There's not much to be confident in anymore, right? Actually, there never really has been. Uh, we can't be confident in much of anything that we, we hear from other people. Nobody can really know the future with certitude. You can even take the weather forecast. Like, we've gotten pretty good at forecasting the weather. But there's always that, like, oh, there was no rain in the forecast, and now it's, like, pouring on me, right? Like, we, we have no capacity to, for, to foretell what the stock market will do next year, who will win the, the next election, what will happen in my life tomorrow. But Jesus says, my word, heaven and earth will one day pass away. It will one day be swept away. History will come to an end, and Jesus' word will stand firm. This promise is not about... You know, the Bible will be perfectly copied and all these things. This is about Jesus saying, what I have promised will actually happen. Be confident. Don't be doubting. Don't be questioning. Don't be looking to shifting, changing, sinking sands of culture. Be looking to the solid rock granite of God's word. You see, God does not know the future merely because he predicts it. It's not like God's like looking down the corridors of time and be like, I think that's going to happen. He knows the future because he plans it. And everything that happens in time and in history and in eternity is the outworking of his eternal plan. That's our foundation. That is our confidence. Which brings us down to the the call to action in verses 34 to, to 36. We're called to be ready. And by ready, I mean vigilant. Be vigilant. We don't know when all this stuff's going to happen. Jesus says, Be ready. So notice what he says. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, that's dissipation, and drunkenness. So don't don't be caught up in dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life. He's using drunkenness as a metaphor for spiritual dullness. Right, just as drunkenness sort of makes you, you're, you hazy and fuzzy and gives you a big massive headache, he's describing uh, the surfeiting, the idea of being hungover. He says, don't be spiritually hungover and spiritually sleepy and spiritually out of it. Be on your guard. First Peter 1 puts it this way. He says, hope to the end for the grace that is being brought to us at the coming of Jesus. 
not following the old lusts, but be ye holy, even as I, the Lord, am holy. First John chapter 3, this is everyone who has this hope and purifies himself. This is a call to holiness. The most important thing you can do to be prepared is to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness to fight sin, to deal with lust and deception and bitterness in your life. To, to, to drive out that sin that easily besets you. That's the most important thing you can do to be spiritually alert and awake and ready for the time when Jesus comes back. He says, don't let sin, don't let the cares of this world dull your senses. Don't be so consumed with the news that you neglect God's truth. Don't be so consumed with current events that you lose sight of the eternal events. He says, okay, it's going to come like a snare, verse 35. It's going to be like a trap that the whole world, they'll be just asleep at the wheel and boom, the end of the time will come upon them and people won't know what hit them. It was mentioned as well in the passage Raymer, Raymer read in 1 Thessalonians 5. So he says in verse 36, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Or the better wording, to, that you may be strengthened to escape these things. Pray for God to give you the spiritual strength to persevere when this all happens. Prayer is your lifeline. Prayer is your source of spiritual power. Watch and pray. In light of eternity, living in light of eternity, living in readiness for the return of Jesus, being prepared for doomsday, it's about developing a prayer life. You're like, I came to church to hear something really profound. Pray, go to church, practice hospitality, tell people about Jesus, Pursue holiness. That's how we prepare for the end. So doomsday is coming. The end of history is coming. It won't be a doomsday for us. It will be our day of rescue and deliverance. Lift up your head. Redemption draws nigh. How do I get ready? Develop discernment. Will you commit yourself to saturating your mind in Scripture? Where Scripture is the most profound shaping influence in your life. Second, will you commit yourself to developing faithfulness? Don't pretend that you will somehow be faithful in persecution if you're not faithful in the little things of gathering with God's people and worshiping Jesus and forgiving your spouse and raising your kids. Faithfulness in the little things is preparation for faithfulness in the big things. Third, develop patient hope. Understand that we don't get glory now. We wait for it. And then develop holiness and prayer. We're called to be prepared. That's how we do it. May God help us. Father, may we rest ourselves in your promises and look for the coming.